listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Baking podcast. It's Michelle, as usual, talking about what else other than the business of baking. I'm excited today to be interviewing one of my students and somebody who I consider a friend, Paula Onik. She is from Chebatske Julier, I hope I said that right, in Kulemburg, yeah. Netherlands, which is really exciting for me because I don't get to interview people in Europe terribly often. I don't know where all you Europeans are hiding, but I'm excited to interview somebody whose bakery is based in Europe and it is a real bakery, like you can walk into it. And I'm particularly interested to talk to Paula because it's a gluten-free bakery, but she's not somebody who needs gluten-free food, which is interesting to me because a lot of times people who start out in specialty baking, be that gluten-free, dairy, free, whatever free they're making, hopefully not taste free. They do it because they themselves actually need that need, but she doesn't have that need. So I'm excited to hear about her experience thus far, what it's been like. She not only runs an actual shop where people can walk in and buy stuff, she also has a web shop these days. She does bread, she does pastries, she does bread mixes, she does all sorts of very exciting and interesting things. And she has employees, including somebody who has special needs, which is very close to my heart. I think that's pretty wonderful too. So without further ado, I'm going to welcome the lovely Paula. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Michelle. How, how are you doing? I am good. I'm excited to chat to you this evening. It's cool. gonna be, I think we're going to have a good chat and I'm hoping that you have some wisdom for people out there because you had an interesting personal experience that I want to talk about also a little bit later in our chat today. So before cool. we get to all that, could you give me I would love it if you give me, actually, a little bit of a background or history behind the bakery. Like, how did you get to where you are? How did this all start for you? Well, the bakery is about, I'm running the bakery right now for five years. But before that, I worked as, well, with people with, who were mentally challenged, like with people with Down syndrome or autism, like a daycare environment. And we baked, but I decided I want to be a baker. I want to bake more than working with the people who are mentally challenged. So I decided to quit my job, go to pastry school, and I fell in love with baking. And not like the cake decorating, but baking itself, cookies and bread and everything. And I wanted to run like a tea room type of bakery. You know, you can sit down, have a nice cup of tea, cup of coffee with pastry. But then, during my pastry school, I was an intern at a chocolate place, Cotto, very tasty bonbons. And my chef was speaking with like a uh, representative about, you know, if you want to survive, that was like in the crisis. If you want to survive in pastry business, you have to specialize. You cannot be the next girl in town who makes also those nice cakes. That was the thing they were talking about. And at the same time, we were discussing gluten in pastry school but like technical like why do you use it what does it do in your bread and in your puffed pastry for example and something worked in my mind like oh click 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 everything fell in place and i'm like i'm gonna bake gluten-free 
because that would be a specialty if you want to survive. That would be the trick. And I didn't even know what gluten-free was. <laughs> so I went to like shops, like the supermarket, and I bought like cookies and I tasted them and they were like awful. I felt so sorry for people who had to eat gluten-free. I'm like, if this is what I was supposed to eat, if I needed to go gluten-free, I would be really sad. But so I'm like, okay, this is my mission. I want to make gluten-free pastry and bread that's tasty and looks nice, maybe even looks good or maybe looks even amazing, but even, you know, just better than what's already in stores. And there weren't that many gluten-free bakeries in Holland at the time. It was like, you know, the hype in the States was just starting and it flew over. We got the hype too, but there's more businesses now. But anyways, back then I was like one of the few. There were a couple, but one of the few. So I started at home, but we do eat gluten. Like you said in the introduction, we don't need to eat gluten-free. It was hard <laughs> to bake in a kitchen where, like my husband likes to make like a quiche, like the hearty, savory tarts yeah. for dinner. So he was exploding the kitchen in flour, wheat flour. And then the same night I had to make a cake, gluten-free. Like, no! This is freaking me out because it was not like a situation that was really, I would say, optimal, whatever. It wasn't a good situation to work in because of the cross-termination. If you have celiac disease, it's really important. No wheat, no gluten, none of it in the same space when you're baking. So I need to find a place. And also, I'm not very good of home working person. I can hear the dishwasher. I can hear the laundry. I can see the laundry building up. I want to fix that but I also need to write a meal I also need to bake anywho I'm also terrible at working from home I hate working from home I'm not good at it I don't know you have a nice office I have a nice office now but I still don't enjoy it because the laundry is just outside the door right I know it's there I know exactly so yeah so I hear you I hear you too (laughs) so So I decided time to get out of a place where I could bake but yeah then I had to look you know the cost wise of course where do I have any money to start something but also, where do I want to be? Do I want to be in my little small city? Do I want to be? Uh, we have a bigger city, like 20 minutes away from us. And the more people, more chances that there are people who need to eat gluten free. But I still had young kids then. They're still young now, but then they were like six years old. And I didn't want to be too far away from them. So I really wanted to stay in my own city, Kulenborg. And so I decided to take a look around and then we had like the places um how do you call it the industrial sites where they're only like i don't know the english word for it like those factories and stuff is that what you mean yeah factories are just companies with no people no, coming in like no walking no storefronts no store yeah fronts. exactly i'm not going to be happy there if i only see four walls and make things and don't see other people that was the cheapest option but not an option for me and then well Finally, I found something. It's like in an area where people, where there are lots of houses and just a few shops, not like in the center where are lots of shops. And it worked out. The rent was okay. The, especially now, I think it was a good decision to go there because I have a lot of customers who don't come from my city. They drive like 45 minutes, an hour, and they can just pull up, park the car, <laughs> 30 loaves of bread in the car and drive off. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a convenient place. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I think, but now, yeah, I still miss the people with, I'm really into what you already mentioned it. If you're not fit for a regular job, what can you do? So I really was open for people who cannot work 40 hours a day in a bakery, but I have a guy with Down syndrome. He works two days with me and he has his own chores. He, he helps customers. The customers love him and he's good. It's not like, oh, just to show off, I'm so sensitive I can have somebody with Down syndrome in my store, but he has his chores and he, I can tell him, go do your job instead of, it's not daycare, it's a job. Cool. He's genuinely a valued employee who's earning his living. Yes. yes. That's it. Not earning his living. That's not how it works in Holland. Right. He has like a social... But he's earning a social living. It might not be money yes, per se. Yes, exactly. It's feeling purpose and it's feeling a part of something and it's somewhere to go. Yes, and he's definitely part of the team. Yeah. Like for instance, like over half a year ago, my baker was sick. She was away for four weeks and I was there by myself with my employee with Down syndrome. We did everything together. Normally he has his own chores, like baking apple pies, but now we had to do everything. We made a, I made the list, everything we do together. And we crossed off every little thing of the list and we helped the customers. We baked bread. We did everything together. And he still remembers that. And he still, he knows now bread, but what's needed, like the plates where we put the baking trays, where we put bread on or where the ingredients are. So he's really proud of himself that he knows all this stuff. And like a few weeks ago, we have brownies and we glaze them with ganache and I put some white chocolate stripes on it just you know with a python bag just really quick and really i put tight lines on it like really straight lines and he's like, i want to do that okay here you have a python bag and he makes like the beautiful art so i cannot sell this for like only the two euros per piece i need to sell it for more <laughs> because it's art but he's happy about it as he can do other stuff I think that's amazing. it's amazing and since the summer i have also a baker and he has autism like a mild form of autism. He's been to baking school, like pastry school. And now he's working two days a week in my place. So that's nice. And his way of working, his, his tempo, his speed is not like an average guy, but that's okay. We have the space for him to work in his own time, to take his time for the things he needs to learn. So that's okay. You sound like you have the patience of a saint. I don't. <laughs> I might do, but I'm like, okay, hurry up, hurry up. No, no, no. I cannot demand from him to hurry up, but I need to go. And he was working like uh, I needed to be somewhere else. And then in the beginning, he couldn't work the whole day because he didn't know how to do the stuff and what to do. And he was depending on me, on my hours. So when I needed to go away for an appointment, he needed to go home as well. So he needed to hurry up, but I couldn't demand that. That we have to work around that. But now it's okay. He's trained for the stuff he needs to do. That's cool. I think that's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, obviously it's all working. These guys are all getting to do the best they can within the parameters. You have the patience to have them there and everybody's happy from that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you've been running the business for five years now in its location, yes. and I know it's mostly bread and some pastries and desserts and things, but I also know that last year, I believe, you introduced the bread mixes, so tell me a little bit yes. about that. I have to correct you, because my name, well, you're not Dutch, so I cannot blame you, but it, the gebak, the first part of my name is pastry, so my ah. love is for pastry, and the bread is like, I need to bake bread, that's income. No, nobody eats pastry every day. Well, I do, but 
Normal people don't eat pastry every day, but bread in Holland is like a staple. We eat bread every day, maybe the whole day. So duty-free bread, that's my income. And all the pastry, that's cool. But And people come for the pastry, but not every day. Right. So yes, I'm, and well, as, as you said, we met in November last year. Mm-hmm. I think in January, I introduced the bread mixes so people can buy pre-mixed bread mixes. I put all the flour in it. They only have to put yeast and water in it. And they can make their own delicious gluten-free bread at home. It works like a charm. It's uh, cool. So can they buy the mix in the shop and on the web shop? Like if I wanted to buy the gluten-free bread mix, where do I get it? At the web shop and in the physical shop, the storefront. Yes, both places. And so really interesting, Paula, one of the things I've spoken to a couple of different people who run businesses like that and who introduce mixes, you know, pie mix or bread mix or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they always worry that this means that those people won't be buying the actual like finished product. So do the people who buy the mixes also buy the finished product or is it like they buy one or they buy the other? Some people buy only to bake the bread, just only the mixes. And most people buy a loaf of bread and the mixes. So I can eat it now or today and I can bake some later, maybe next weekend when I have time. That's what I would have thought, especially if people are traveling to come to you. Like this way you get both, if you have to come a long way to come to your bakery, then at least you can have a little bit now and a little bit later. It kind of serves two needs for the same person, you know? Yes, definitely. And so tell me, do you have a favorite product in your business? Yes, well, pastry, of course, but then I have three favorite products. <laughs> white chocolate mousse with raspberry. Okay. Because white chocolate mousse is lovely. It's so soft and nice texture. And I always forget, but the brownie, I just love chocolate, so brownie. When I was in the States, like nine years ago, I had my first pecan pie. We don't have pecan pie in Holland. Okay. It now we it's a very American thing, isn't it? Yes, and I love it. I saw it in the morning in the shiner, but we had a big breakfast, so I didn't get my pecan pie. And we went back like an hour by car. And then in the evening, I took the car to the diner. (laughs) I want pecan pie. I bought pecan pie and oh, this is the best ever. Oh yes, pecan pie. And now we have pecan pie gluten-free in the bakery. And it's popular, but not as popular as I would. Is, like. is it not that popular not because popular. you think people are just not familiar with it? Yes, that's what I think. But it's all these trends and things. Like we even celebrate Halloween now in Holland, which is not a Dutch holiday, but still. So uh, pecan pie is also coming to Holland. There, You can get it more than like nine years ago. Okay. so the- I'm converting people, you know. You're converting people, yeah. yeah. So, so the pastries and the pecan pie are your favorite. What's the best seller among your customers? Like, what do they like to eat? Oh, the bread, especially the, I have like a dark multi-seed bread. That's number one, always, every day. And I have two other breads. They compete for second and third place every, I have like a register where I can see that all. The bread is number one. And that's a good thing because it's also like profitable product for me. So when it comes to creating this stuff, like, did you just, you know, take a bunch of gluten-free books from the library and try to make your own? Have you invented every recipe or something? Because gluten-free baking, you cannot just replace the flour and it's going to be okay. I mean, it's a whole different kind of chemical reaction that's going on there. So when you say to yourself, yep, 
I want to make brownies with a ganache glaze or whatever. Do you just invent it from scratch or do you start from an existing recipe or like, how do you bring a gluten-free product to life? Well, I think 80% is like copy paste, just, you know, from cookbooks, other recipes, and then like gluten-free recipes. But I also use regular recipes with wheat flour and like just you swap it out. You swap it out, but then add just maybe you need to add a little egg more or you a bit of more water. I try not to resolve to using sugar or fats like butter extra. That's a, a good thing to camouflage the yucky taste of gluten-free bread or whatever. The flours are not that great compared to wheat. It's a whole different taste. And sometimes it's too dry. But I try not to use common things like sugar or chocolate to cover up the taste. I try to find ways to use just like water or I said egg to enhance the gluten-free but not to make it extra sugary or extra fat because that's also an issue. But yeah, it's a lot of copy-paste from other recipes and trying and, you know, trial and error. When I was baking at home, my bin was full of (laughs) really rubbish tasting gluten-free trials. Yeah, I started with chickpea flour, and I don't like chickpea flour. Um, bee sunflower is actually delicious, but it's delicious in like Indian food, and yeah, and it is. I don't know how good it is in like hearty, like savory stuff. That's yeah, good. it has a very distinct flavor. I don't know how good yeah. it would go in pastries, really, and it's a little bit yeah. kind of crumbly, so I don't know how well that yeah. would go in. Oh, exactly. That's <laughs> Has there ever been a product that somebody said to you, can you make me a gluten-free whatever? And you tried it and it was just a complete fail? Yes. I think of examples. Puffed pastry is an issue. Like really nice puffed pastry. That's difficult. I still haven't really managed to get like a real good puffed pastry. And we have like a typical Dutch product. It's called Tom Goose. And that's pastry and you can get it everywhere <laughs> and you can get it only one day a year in my place they eat it like at king's day and puff pastry is hard because you need the gluten to get the air pockets going and that's hard so whenever people ask oh do you have the tompoos the products like um, every other day i'm like no we only sell them on king's day because it's too hard it takes a lot of time and i'm not still not happy about the results as yet Right. And so do you have like people who are not gluten-free eat your products and go, oh my God, this just tastes like normal? Yes. <laughs> is that always your goal? Like, is your goal always to make it taste not gluten-free? Yes, because, well, I don't need to eat gluten-free. I know exactly. I can go to the next door bakery and get my gluten stuff and it needs to taste the same or better. That's it. And some products are hard. Like the bread, it's like an oatmeal bread with like tapioca. And it's a whole different flavor than regular bread. So people can say, oh, okay, this is not my kind of bread. Yeah, sure. That's products that the comparison, where you can really taste, is not the same. But my brownie tastes just the same. Lots of chocolate, sugar, and butter. <laughs> that's it. So that tastes the same or even better. And I have lots of customers that like wedding cakes. Well, if only the bride needs to eat gluten-free, the rest of the guests will have the same cake. And nobody knows it's gluten-free. That's my object. I think you're so right. And not so much now, but for a long time, gluten-free products were just, oh man, they were just terrible. Like truly terrible. 
And these days you can often eat a lot of beautiful gluten-free foods, which doesn't even taste yes. free at all, you know? Yes. So you've been running the business for five years now. And what would you mm -hmm. say is the easiest part of running the business? I mean, I know small business is never easy, but is there something that just brings you a lot of joy or you enjoy it the most, or it's just not that hard or like, what's the part that you really love about it? Yeah. Being my own boss, just, you know, it's my idea. It's my way of doing things that I want to have this product or I want to do this. I'm going to change it up like the Tom Pusen. Like every bakery makes Tom Pusen, the Dutch puffed pastry product. I'm like, it costs too much labor. So I'm like, okay, I'll decide. I'll just make it once a year. I don't care. If you want to have Tom Pusen every day, it's not profitable for me to make Tom Pusen every day. So I get to decide that. That's cool. That's what I like. And I love making white chocolate mousse, so I don't let my staff make it because I love it too much to make it. I don't know. That is part of the beauty of being the boss, is that you can decide what you make and don't make, right? Exactly. One of the things I often talk about when I teach and people ask me about it is, you know, did I run the business full time? Well, I did, except on Fridays. On Fridays, I decorated because I liked having... Okay one day a week where I could go in the kitchen and play with white chocolate mousse or whatever else I exactly. wanted to play with. And, you know, the yeah. boss gets to decide where she spends her time. And I love that, you know, the guy with Down syndrome, the guy with autism, that they have a safe place where they can be themselves and try to learn new stuff and be valued for what, they're, for what they are, for who they are, and can be themselves and, you know, have work and be happy and be appreciated that's what i like it makes us feel good to know that we're helping others to achieve something too you know yeah. and so because i asked you what the best part is i have to of course ask what's the most <laughs> difficult part of running the business you said and i said as well to decide whatever you want to do but all the other decisions <laughs> i think that's a hard part you know i have to decide new employees uh what are they supposed to do uh new how do you call it uh, like machinery the, the oven broke down my uh, sheeter machine uh, broke down my everything broke down last year those decisions i find it hard and also the physical labor i worked by myself for the first two years i had like volunteers but most of the time i was by myself and that really was too much after two years i was already like physically bankrupt so i had to hire help get employees and that made it physically more easier although you know like when my baker felt sick like for a month i stepped in to do that and be the boss and make all the decisions that was pretty overwhelming to you know do all the things by yourself and even though if you have staff which i do now there's still so many things are on my plate that I need to do, I need to decide. And I find it difficult to, <laughs> to get some of the stuff off my plate and take, hey, you take care of that, you'll make that decision, here you are, here you have some budgets for, you know, I don't know, deciding which oven will be in the bakery, whatever, you know. Yeah, time. so the best part is you get to run your own business and make all the choices. And the worst part, part is you get to run your own business and make all the choices. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, right? You know what? It's so true, right? It is so true. It is such an incredible freedom in getting to make all the choices ourselves, but it's also an enormous responsibility in making all the choices yeah. ourselves. So, for sure. So, yeah. Paula, I know earlier this year you had a little bit of a health scare, and that kind of made you reassess everything that went on with the bakery and with your life and taking some time off and maybe not being so stressed. And I don't expect you to give us all the, you know, personal details of that. But I guess what I want to know is 
what lesson did you learn from having that health experience? Like, you know, when we have something traumatic and upsetting happening to us, I think we have two ways of looking at it. We can either look at it as like, this is the worst thing in the world and everything is crashing down and my business is terrible. My life is terrible. My everything is terrible. <laughs> or we can look at it and say, yeah, this experience is terrible, but I'm learning lessons from it and the lessons are invaluable. So I'm curious to know what lessons did you take from having that health experience happen to you? Well, the most important lesson I learned is that, you know, let it go. Don't, uh, you know, yeah, the day is not the right word, but I have to think about it. I can tell you for me that just while you're thinking about it, whenever traumatic things happen to me from a health point of view or from a personal point of view or whatever, we were talking before we started the podcast about how for me in particular this year has been really very challenging on a number of levels. Luckily, my health has been 100% fine. Knock wood, it's going to stay that way. But emotionally and personally, I've had a really rough year. And I find that the lesson I learn is usually two lessons. One is that nothing is ever as big a deal as I think it is. Yeah, right? very true. The thing that last week I thought was some huge crisis is really not a huge crisis. And the second thing I've probably learned is that the people around me are more capable and more forgiving than I think they are. So I think that because I run my own business, I need to be in charge of everything. I need to make all the decisions. I need to make all the rules. I need to this, I need to that. And I had become a little bit of basically a control freak, you know? I felt like I had to constantly do everything myself. And then when a crisis happened, I learned that, you know what? The people around me are very capable of making decisions. They're very capable of doing not all, but some of the things that I'm currently responsible for. And they're also very forgiving. If I need to lean on them for a little bit longer than I thought, or if I need to rely on them for more work than I thought, you know what? They have a way of figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. Of managing. So whenever I have a crisis, those are kind of the lessons I learn. One, that nothing's ever as important as I thought it was in the moment. And two, that the people around me are more valuable and more capable and more useful than I thought they were. So that's the things I tend to relearn over and over again every time I have some sort of crisis moment. So I'm curious, like, you know, is that what you learned through this experience? Well, I learned, you know, to appreciate what matters most. And to me, my family, my kids and my husband and myself are the four persons that matter most. Is the business, the gluten-free community in Holland, like, oh, I need to take care of them? No, somebody else will step in my place if I quit, if I stop doing what, like the extreme version of what I thought after my physical health uh, let me down. I'm like, no, if I quit, somebody else will step up. No, they're not relying on me and I'm not relying on them for income, but my joy of life will not be, I will find other ways to be happy, you know? And then my husband and myself, we are the four most important things, persons in the world to me. And I need to take care of that first and maybe okay yeah i can bake gluten-free bread for you i can make you a wedding cake to have the most beautiful wedding in the world but no not number one that was an exceptionally difficult lesson for me to learn as well i actually when i was making the decision to sell the business one of the things i really struggled with was this feeling like well where are these people gonna go for birthday cake where are they gonna go for cupcakes or whatever it really took me thinking for a long time to realize that you know what? If I fall over, they're going to find a replacement. But if I fall over, my children are not going to find a replacement mother. 
Exactly. That was a very yes. challenging lesson for me to learn. And I have to say that it changed learning that actually as painful and difficult as it was to learn that, that I as a baker am expendable, but as a mother or a daughter or a sister or a friend, I'm not. That was a difficult lesson, but I think a really important one too. It helped me to prioritize a lot of things in my life. So, you know. Yes. Paul, yeah. I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to us today and to share your experience. And I'm so glad that you've shown that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in your target market to sell to your target market, right? You're not gluten-free and you're selling gluten-free. That you can care about the product, but also care about making a living. That you can give to others by way of employing people who need you to be employing them. And you just, I know that it's hard and I know that it, not every day is a party, but every day you get to make white chocolate mousse is probably a good one. So I'm so yes. grateful to you for talking to me today. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's probably a busy day in the bakery, so I appreciate you taking the time to chat to me. And Thank you very time, much, Michelle. Next time any of you are in Kulenberg in the Netherlands, you should go and visit my friend Paula and eat her amazing product and tell her that it tastes nothing like gluten-free. Exactly. Good thing. Yes. Right. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Business of Baking podcast. I will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.